Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on a rainy and autumn day here in the capital and once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on this afternoon's programme, I'm delighted to welcome Adrian Dirks. Adrian is a director at Nightall Winery and Restaurant, a boutique winery and wedding venue based in Cornwall. Um, Adrian, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for joining us. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Scott. It's a pleasure. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us as well, Adrian. Um, Normally, we'd dive straight into the subject of leadership and really bring that into focus. But considering the ongoing COVID-19 situation that's been the dominant headline of the year, I think it's fair to say, let's uh, start there. Because it has proven to be one of the most significant challenges of our time for leaders within all walks of life. But for yourself and your business, just to what extent has it affected you and your operations? Um, well, if we split the operation into sort of two component parts, I mean, um, it's been pretty impactful on both, but uh, probably most on, uh, as you probably expect, on uh, the wedding business because, uh, I mean, effectively, I can't remember if it was, was it sort of Friday in March 23rd or something where they just shut shut the business down effectively and nobody could get married anymore. Um so I mean, it was pretty impactful on uh, on on that side of it. Um, the uh, and um, on the other side, the winery side, uh, we still continue to sort of trade, but seventy um, percent of our business had been with uh, hospitality, restaurants, and hotels and such like. So that disappeared. Um, there was a silver lining on that side, though, because. Um, the online um, sales and then retail when we reopened uh, went through the roof. So um, uh, it, uh, it effectively accelerated uh, certain changes which were, were more profitable for us on that side. And, um, and um, but uh, certainly on the wedding side, it's been a, it's been a big challenge. Yes, there's certainly technology's proven um, a hugely important part of keeping the country running during this uh, period of time. And business has seen quite a lot of success on the online side of things as everything else has shut down. Um, But even if we say fast forward one or two years um, into the future, when hopefully by then COVID-19 will no longer be a problem, do you still think that certain parts of the business, like the wedding side of things, could be subdued just purely because of consumer confidence and that anxiety still lingering large? Uh, well, there's a crystal ball. Uh, uh, the answer, short answer, is yes. Um, and, um, the probability is it will. Uh, there were already certain trends going on, uh, which uh, I mean, they, there was an increasing number of um, what we would call micro weddings, um, or um, uh, basically staycation type of weddings, in, um, which meant uh, the numbers were going down in terms of the uh, uh, people attending. Obviously, COVID actually made the force that force the force that, and uh, but it's made it more, um, more 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 common. I think that will continue through, which will cause some challenges for venues because obviously you're built around certain amounts of numbers, effectively, mm. um, and. Um, it's harder to make money on smaller numbers, but uh, I mean, certainly we're having to. We're certainly having to adjust. Um, we're certainly having to adjust to it. So no, I think it will have a certain long-term impact. I mean, and uh, 
um, they'll probably be it probably will be on the sort of size of these things. And from having to adapt to this new reality, is there anything that you'd say you might have learned from all of this? Um, the well, I mean, you have to you have to continually sort of change and manage. Um, so, I mean, for instance, um, again, don't just to the wedding side of it. I mean, the uh, uh, the shutdown we started being sort of lifted in June, if you recall, and. Um, uh, at, at that stage, obviously, though, almost all the weddings that one had had been cancelled or postponed right the way through till uh, the end of August. And um, so one had to replace or try to replace that revenue and to get people back to work because most of the staff, I mean, there's about 25 on the payroll, most of them are young, most of them want to work. Um, and uh, we, they basically, we had to try to market a whole bunch of different things to replace the uh, uh, the lost revenue and get footfall, which we which we did. So, I mean, partly with government help in August, the Rishi Sunak thing helped quite considerably. That that uh, with an offering around sort of tapas and um, things like that on Monday, Tuesdays, basically other offerings like feast nights and so on, and. Uh, and um, uh, we basically replaced a lot of the revenue, not uh, by any means all of it, but uh, we also managed to get people back to work, which is really, I think, quite important, particularly at that age group. So um, we learned a bit about being quick on marketing. Mm-hmm. And um, um, what else did we learn? A, um, it was a very sort of trying time because um, a, if you think about the clientele, I mean, most of them were, really quite unhappy uh, because uh, they're looking forward to their big day, uh, which they want to be perfect, and they're not being able to have it, are they? So um, the amount of work you have to do, because we have a team of about three wedding planners, Mm. uh, the amount of work you have to do almost stays, almost goes up, um, because you're dealing with this and your staff are under a lot of pressure. So... uh, um, in terms of sort of lessons, I mean, it's about moving quickly and decisively to uh, actually adjust to the market and what's of a, what's available on a real time basis. Of course, when you're in a leadership position within a business during a time of difficulty such as this, you not only have to act as sort of a beacon of inspiration and motivation yourself, but you also have to ask for a lot more from the people that you work with just to keep things ticking over and try and change the business up, shake up things just to keep services being provided and keep a source of income going. But do you find that during a time of adversity like this, you learn a lot more about the people around you in how they stand up and be counted? Um, I think, I mean, basically, it's not the easiest business anyway. So we'd already, and it's, 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 we've been going for a few years, but it's, I mean, it's only recently that we've ended up being sort of break even into profitability. So the, um, I mean, effectively, one gets to, gets to know people. It's, it's not plain staying in normal times, but, uh, I would say you do, yes, you do see a certain amount. It's only under stress, under stressful situations, you will see more of people, that's for sure. Um, and um, some people, most of them will sort of step up to the plate. I was quite surprised by 
Well, there's two ways that people can go. I mean, one is that they can be, some people can be quite very happy to be uh, on 80% pay furlough for, and wanted to stay on it. Um, some even wanted to sort of almost defraud the system and basically get paid first half as well as getting furlough. But uh, uh, we, we obviously, less said about that, the better really with it. But the, uh, um, for most people, um, they just, Really wanted. They, they don't like to be cut adrift. They want to. They want to stay involved and they want to make a difference. Um, certainly, most of the people that we've got working for us. So, uh, I mean, it's, it's quite quite pleasing to see that. If you see what I mean. Mm. And just switching focus from COVID nineteen for a moment, Adrian. Um, I understand. Correct me if I'm wrong. That you did have a successful career in the IT industry before venturing into the sector that you're in now. Um, so I'm just interested to understand what the inspiration was uh, behind that and wanting to go it alone in that sense. Um, sorry, could you uh, say the inspiration behind what? Behind going into the industry that you're in now and setting up Night or Winery. <laughs> Um, I was, uh, I'd always felt that one should learn as one goes through life and not do the same thing twice. I mean, the easiest thing for me would have been to go into a very similar business, which in that case was services, um, business to business to business mainly. And, uh, the, uh, so I thought I should do something a bit different and, uh, uh to keep, to keep on learning as I go through this, uh, this life. And, uh, I can, so I picked on something which, uh, uh, it was a mixture of farming, because um, we actually grow grapes, um, manufacturing, because we make wine, and uh, business cons- to consumer, because we uh, we sell it and we have uh, we have this uh, uh, this this wedding venue. And so, uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I certainly have learned loads as I went through. But that that was the primary reason, not to not to make money. It was to actually. Uh, keep 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 learning and not do the same thing again, which would have been boring. And it's interesting that you mentioned the word learning because within leadership, learning is a continuous process, isn't it? We're never a finished article, no matter what position we're in. And a lot of running a business is quite often just that trial and error. Yeah, that would be fair. That would be a fair statement, really. And if you if you do stop learning for too long and there's nothing new on the thing, then uh, you're probably either mistaken um, or you're going to get very stale. Exactly. It's, of course, important to continue to study and look into things and keep oneself fresh. I think that's absolutely right. And thinking about uh, what might come in the future now, Adrian, just before we do wrap things up on the programme, because I'm conscious that we are running short of time. Um, we know that over the course of the year, the next year, business is going to have to continue to essentially think and act on its feet and react to changing guidelines, changing circumstances, because the new normal is here to stay, perhaps for another six months, perhaps for longer. Um, but as we're getting to grips with that, and hopefully getting closer to leaving COVID-19 behind forever. What is it that you're really hoping to achieve as a business? And indeed, where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months? Well, I mean, um, mean, the the visibility is really poor. I mean, you say that there will be in this new normal for another six to nine months, maybe maybe longer. Um, That's going to be pretty tough for us. Um, if that if that is the case, because I mean, if you think about it, the core of the business is is to do with uh, predominantly young people uh, doing what they like doing, which is basically moving on with life, marking marking high spots of their uh, of their life and socialising and so on. So uh, the, the outlook won't be good for 
businesses in hospitality, uh, if that's the case. But within that, um, yeah, the plans are at the moment, we are adjusting ourselves to, um, to uh, and we'll start marketing hard on uh, offerings that are probably a mixture of um, physical presence, so within the guidelines, uh, and um, uh, offline presence. So, um, by which uh, I mean that uh, you can imagine that basically you can we can sort of live stream parts of the actual um, function, the ceremony, and the uh, and things like the speeches and things like that to other people who can't be there, who also have been sent a pack of stuff that is going to be enjoyed on the day, certain wines, for instance, welcome drinks, um, and and other stuff, and. Uh, and as a result, sort of those, those type of things, plus um, uh, plus a, diff- a sort of different mix in terms of the offering, probably appealing more to the, uh, as I said before, small numbers um, coming but wanting a heightened experience. Uh, so yeah, we'll we'll adjust that way round. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting time for business for sure as it continues to pivot over the uh, the next few months. And I actually think, Adrian, just given how enlightening it's been having you join us on the programme today, it would be wonderful to catch up at some point in the next year just to see how things at night or are coming along in the, uh, the coming months. Yeah, it would be more than welcome. I'd certainly welcome that. I've thoroughly enjoyed um, your company on uh, the airwaves uh, this afternoon, uh, Adrian. It's been a real pleasure welcoming you onto the show. And most importantly, until we do hopefully speak again, please do take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the world as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much indeed, and uh, I wish you I, I wish you the same. And uh, thank you for airing airing my views in your podcast. It's been a real pleasure to air those views, Adrian. It's what, of course, we're all about at the Leaders' Council, chronicling the realities of uh, British leadership throughout this challenging time. And that message I would also reiterate to every single one of our listeners. Do please continue to look after yourselves and be considerate of others because it does make a real difference in saving lives. And let's all just keep our fingers crossed that this will be over before too long. It was a pleasure welcoming Adrian Dirks onto today's programme, Director at Night Out Winery and Restaurant in Cornwall. Coming up next on today's show, we'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. That is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10,000 or 25,000, all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being. 
and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is as far as humanly possible is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks that they'll also take account of going into the the cyber security side effectively as well the more we are online the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become and that's something to think about as well how important is strong leadership at the moment well i actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons. 
but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in and if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they 
you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business. What will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? These kind of things you you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm-hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food, a lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about 
is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer 
where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and um, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. 
and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Secure needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Secure Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, 
uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, for the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from Mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.